Well, my name's Darren, and I serve on staff here uh, as one of the shepherds and have the opportunity to open God's Word. And we're in the midst of a study in 1 Corinthians, and I want to say a, first, uh, a couple of things before we dive into our text today. Uh, I want to remind you firstly, um, I want to remind you firstly that there is an overarching emphasis to the book of 1 Corinthians that will help us untangle a, comple- a complex text that we're in this morning. So the overarching emphasis in 1 Corinthians has been unity. From chapter 1, we have heard Paul say again and again, hey, I heard that there's divisions and there shouldn't be these divisions. I want to keep this church together, right? He's saying to the church at Corinth, we are a a new kind of a body because formerly there were all of these different segregated groups and now we've got Hebrews and we've got Greeks and we've got slaves and we've got former slave owners and we've got men and women and all these people serving in this diverse community united under Christ. And it's natural that there are going to be some places where tension arises because the rest of the culture is divided but here in the name of Jesus, we want to be united. And so he's built a case chapter after chapter for the ways in which unity needs to be held onto and division needs to be rejected, right? Um, most recently in the last few chapters we've been studying, we have seen him argue again and again for the need for all of us to, who are followers of Jesus to glorify God by imitating Christ in sacrificing our own desires in service of others, right? Does that make sense? I know that's a long sentence, but let me say it one more time. What he said to us over and over, whether he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols or whether he's talking about the, you know, the, the way in which he chooses to serve as an apostle where he says, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What he's advocating for again and again is one overarching idea. And the idea is like he says in chapter 10, that in everything you do, you should be glorifying God, whether what you eat or what you drink or what you wear or where you go, all of that is for the glory of God. He'll go on to say that the way in which we glorify God is by imitating the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did the Lord Jesus Christ do? He laid down his life for the good of other people. So when it comes to issues like meat sacrifice to idols or whatever, he's saying, look, you're free in Christ. You can do whatever you want to do, but consider someone other than yourself when you're making your determination, because when you consider other people, you're putting on the attitude in the mind of the Lord Jesus who considered other people, right? So glorify God by imitating Christ in the service of the good of others. We've heard that again and again and again. Now, in the last few chapters, he's been talking about the way in which that happens outside the church in the public sphere. But what we'll see now as we come into 11 is that he's going to start talking about the way in which we glorify God through the imitation of Christ in the service of other people inside the church and specifically inside their public and corporate worship. Now, corporate worship in the first century was different than it is this morning. They didn't have a room that seats 1,800 people. They were gathered in homes. Uh, A lot of times you had all kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds gathered in most likely a wealthy person's home because that was the only kinds of homes that could hold multiple people. But we're still not talking about hundreds of people. We're talking about small groups. They were living in a a very specific kind of culture at a very specific kind of time. And so in these next couple of chapters, he's going to talk about three, specifically three ways in which we can see division. He talks about head coverings for women at the beginning of 11. At the end of 11, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper or the communion table in a way that division can happen there. And next week, when we get into chapter 12, he's going to start talking about speaking in tongues. And in each one of those cases, he's not talking about our external facing ways in which division can happen, but internal ways in which division can happen. 
So I, I wanted to preface that so that you get the sense that there's an overarching idea that he has talked about externally. Now he's talking about internally in our order and conduct of worship within. Now that said, let me say this. In the first, uh, like, verses 2 through 16, there is one of the most hotly debated sections of Scripture that you will find in all of the Bible. I will tell you that in my month or so of study and preparation for this sermon, I have read at least 50 scholarly papers about this text, right? I've done a lot of work. And in reading 50 scholarly presentations about 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, I have literally heard 50 different opinions, right? 50 different opinions on this text. And here's the reason. Scholars, and here again, I want to be really clear. When I talk about scholarly works, I'm talking about people who revere God's word, who think Jesus Christ is Lord, who want to glorify God by serving others in the imitation of Christ. These are, these are not like heretics and wackos. 50 scholarly papers by 50 different people with 50 different subtly different opinions. And it's because there are words in these first 16 verses that we're not exactly sure how to interpret. There are phrases in these first 16 verses that we're not exactly sure how to interpret. There are cultural ideas that we're not exactly sure uh, how the culture handled certain things or how they didn't. And there are all kinds of different opinions. There are logical arguments that Paul makes in these first 16 verses that we're not totally sure what his point is or how his logic works. And there are points of application that we're not entirely sure of, right? And so if you were to go, and I I would say, man, if you just want to go down like a black hole of theological interpretation, more power to you. I can give you some books to read, but you get lost in a text like this because so many different people have different opinions. Here's my point in all that. There are passages like 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, where if you feel like you have certainly unlocked the one singular interpretation of this text and everybody else has it wrong, you've probably given yourself too much, uh, too much credit, right? Anybody, including myself, who were to get up in front of you and say, I have solved 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and anyone who disagrees with me is wrong, is misunderstanding the fact that the passage was written and delivered authoritatively by the Holy Spirit in a way that leaves a little bit uh, up to the imagination. Does that make sense? It's a little bit vague, and it's a little bit confusing. And the fact that we're interpreting a text that that was written 2,000 years ago inspired by the Holy Spirit makes it even more complex. All I'm advocating for this morning is that you give yourself a little grace with regard to interpreting the text, and that you give others a little bit of grace with regard to interpreting the text. That you recognize that the overarching goal of Paul in writing this book to the church at Corinth was to say, all of us should not be divided. And in fact, we'll see in this text, he'll say, don't let this be an opportunity for contention. That should not be the practice of the church. If in talking about head coverings for women, you start to feel yourself getting contentious, You've missed the point because the point is the glory of God in the imitation of Christ through our personal sacrifice for the good of other people. And if you lose that point, you've missed what he's aiming at here, right? You've missed what he's aiming at. Now, let me say this too. There are some who have interpreted words in this text or phrases in this text or the logic in this text or the ancient culture or the current culture in this text or the application in this text in such a way that the text becomes weaponized, right? So I want to say this too. There are some of you, I'm going to read the text in a second. I know you're like, when is he going to actually start teaching us what the Bible says? I'm going to get there, I promise. But I want to say before I read it that as I read it, for some of you, your hackles are going to rise, 
Because maybe you've been in a context where the text has been used uh, for abusive purpose, right? Or maybe you've been in a context where someone has said, I know what this means, and it means X, Y, or Z to the detriment of other people. I want to say right away, I know that this text might be triggering. It's funny, even in some of our teaching team meetings and some of our planning, this is a text that's triggering for people, right? This is a text that brings hurt and sometimes pain. It can bring shame. It can bring frustration. This is a text that that might sort of set off your alarm sirens. I want to say before we read it, you are loved, not just by me, although you are loved by me, but you are loved by God. And his word was written for you. And we are in this together. And as we read it, if you feel like you're getting your fists are clenching and the veins are popping out of your neck and you got steam coming out of your ears, give yourself grace. Give me a little bit of grace, right? And and let's walk the path together as we go forward, right? These are the kinds of things we can talk about and converse. And here's the thing too. You are totally free to have a different opinion about the text than me. Because we're all sort of doing our best here. You know what I'm saying? Right? You may disagree with my interpretation. That's what I give you this morning. I'm going to give you my interpretation here. But I want to say from the outset, I could be wrong. And any theologian or scholar of the Bible who's teaching this particular text and isn't willing to say I could be wrong is fooling himself and he's trying to fool you. Does that make sense? We're doing our best here. So give yourself a little grace. Know that it can be triggering. With that said, let's read it together. Right? Here we go. Second, or 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to read 2 through the end of the chapter. It says this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. All right, so there's the text. How many of you felt it, right? You feel it? You feel your fists get a little tight? Maybe not. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I don't know what the big deal is. It seems really easy to me, right? I don't know what the problem is. Let's walk through it a little bit at a time. And for the sake of uh, sort of illustrating his overarching point, I actually want to teach the second half of the chapter first, I think. I've sort of wrestled with this. I think this is the best way to go. Second half of the chapter is the second of his sort of inward, orderly uh, church conduct, worship service instructions, right? And what he's talking about there is the communion table, the Lord's Supper, right? He, he, this is the famous place. We read it every month when we celebrate communion together. The famous place that gives us an idea of the ordinance that the Lord established, right? That that Jesus himself sat with his disciples. He took the cup. He took the bread. He said, this represents my blood that's being poured out for you. This represents my body that's being poured out for you. And as often as you drink the cup and you eat the bread, do so in remembrance of the sacrifice I'm making. Jesus created this equitable table where Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female were all one. They put on Christ, right? And they were able to come to this table and no matter who you are, no matter what your social status, no matter where you came from, you were able to partake in the body and blood of Christ because it was for you. And yet what is happening and what he addresses here is that the Lord's, they're calling it the Lord's table. They're calling it the communion table. But what he says in the second half of this chapter is it ceased to be that. It has ceased to be the communion table or the Lord's Supper because it's no longer in the spirit of the Lord. When you come to the table, he says, some of you are rushing to eat as much as you can. Now, this might be confusing to you if you've taken communion in our church because we hand out a little plastic cup with some gross purple Kool-Aid in it and a little styrofoam chip that we've convinced you is edible, right? And those things we take in remembrance of Christ. But when you think about rushing to that little styrofoam chip in order to stuff yourself to gluttony or getting drunk off that Kool-Aid, you know that can't happen, right? Well, that's because they weren't celebrating communion the way we celebrated in 2023. They were actually sitting down together. Remember, these churches are taking place at a home. They were actually sitting down together at a, at a table, right? They're sitting together in a home celebrating over a meal. But what was happening is that their divisions were popping back up again. The rich people were getting most of the food and they were stuffing themselves and there was gluttony happening. They were taking some, some were getting a ton and some were getting none. He says, why, why would you do this thing and shame those who have very little, right? He says in verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Right? So the idea here was, a, was a, a discrepancy between the rich and the poor where people were coming and they were filling themselves, but not that, that had nothing to do with the Spirit of Christ. So they were calling it the Lord's table. But what Paul says is, if all you can think about is serving yourself and serving your own appetites and serving your own desires, and you've completely shut other people out or you've set them aside or you've treated them poorly because of their class distinction or whatever, the moment that you lose sight of the equitable sacrifice of Christ for all people, whatever it is you're eating, uh, you call it what you want. Don't call it the Lord's Supper because it stopped being that when it stopped being done in the spirit of Jesus. Does that make sense? 
That's the point of the second half of the chapter. And in fact, there's a whole section there that talks about examining yourself before you come to the table. When I was a kid, I grew up conservative Baptist. When I was a kid, there was this idea of like, man, you better not take communion without confessing all your sin because you might drop dead. It says so in 1 Corinthians 11, right? If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you better get all that out. Listen, look at the context. That is not what this text teaches. This text does not teach that you have to look inside yourself and make sure that you've confessed all of your sin and that you are as holy as you can be before you take that little rice cracker. What it's saying is, look at your motivation. When you come to the Lord's table, is your motivation to sit with brothers and sisters, with people of different skin color and different languages and different economic status? Is your goal to come and represent the sacrificial spirit of Christ? Examine your heart. Look at what you're doing at this table. Look at what you're doing side by side with your fellow men and women. And make sure that when you take the bread and when you drink the cup, remembering the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that was given for you, that you're doing so with the same equitable sacrificial spirit that Jesus himself had when he laid his life down. And if you look into your own heart and you feel that sense of uh, segregation or you feel that sense of judgment or you feel that sense of being better than others or holier than thou or separating yourself from other people on any level, if you feel that sense of division, recognize you can eat the cracker and drink the cup, but you're not taking communion anymore because it hasn't been done in the spirit of Christ. See the difference? So to illustrate the larger point of the whole book, If the goal is that we would glorify God by imitating Christ in the sacrificial service of other people for their good, when he looks at the communion table and he sees people taking as much as they can and some people getting none, he says, this isn't glorifying God. It's just filling your belly. The way you're treating other people is not done in the spirit of Christ and therefore don't connect this with Jesus. It's something else. But if you want to celebrate the Lord's table, it has to be done in the same spirit in which Jesus conducted himself. That's the second half of the chapter in in quick summary. There are two things in this chapter that are really uh, uncontested. And one of them is that the celebration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper will be a part of Christian worship, right? So that's why we celebrate communion once a month. Sometimes we do it more than that if we feel like the Lord is leading us to do that. There are many churches who celebrate communion every week. There are some who do it twice a year, whatever. It doesn't give us frequency, but the implication is that we will, as a gathered body of the Lord Jesus Christ, be celebrating and remembering the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but we'll be doing that in a sacrificial spirit that needs to be considered before we come to the table, right? That's, that's one of the uncontested things here. The other uncontested thing that I want you to see in the first half of the chapter, and th- this may come as a surprise to you, but I, I want you to see very clearly that in the first half of the chapter, despite all of the other things that people could argue over, it is very clear from Paul's tone that men and women will be praying and prophesying in a public way in the church. Let that soak in for a second. And by the way, when we talk about prophecy, and we're going to look at this more closely in a couple of weeks when we get to 14, but prophecy in the New Testament church wasn't just, uh, it wasn't like future telling. It wasn't saying, oh, you know, there's an apocalypse coming, or you better save up, you know, grain because there's going to be a famine. Prophecy was just declaring the truth of God in a way that was convicting and challenging people. So it's, it's in essence the same thing as pastoral teaching or preaching. 
It is absolutely uh, a common in 11 here and, and just sort of assumed that men and women. He does talk about head coverings. He talks about distinction with regard to the way they are attired. But there is no distinction with regard to the fact that men and women are both praying and prophesying in the corporate gathering. The reason why I bring this up is that would have been radical in the first century, right? With the kind of patriarchal society they had in the first century with the kind of common misogyny that was present in the first century, it would have been absolutely mind-blowing if you were a visitor for the first time at one of these Christian worship gatherings that women and men with equity had the opportunity to stand up and prophesy and pray. That both of them were in leadership. That both of them were conveying truths from God for the good of the body. That would have been unheard of in other circles, right? I mean, women commonly, if you look at ancient, uh, ancient writings, women were commonly thought of as like broken men or failed men or deformed men, right? It was, a, it was a culture that was misogynistic and patriarchal. And so some of what Paul is affirming here, as he does in Galatians 3, we read this frequently, but Galatians 3 would have been a driving force for the men and women in, in the new church, their freedom in Christ. Galatians 3.27 says... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. Right? They would have been holding on to this freedom that all of those cultural divisions had been undone in Christ and that they were set free. So when they come together to worship, there was this opportunity for both to share. When I'm talking about prophecy, just for clarity... Uh, in 14, when Paul later, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, when in 14, when Paul's talking about the fact that he would rather prophesy than speak in tongues without an interpreter, um, he, he talks about what prophecy is meant to be. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 24, not to get ahead of myself, but in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, it says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The intention or the purpose of prophecy in the New Testament church wasn't telling the future. The intention of prophecy, look at it right here in 24 or 25, right? That an unbeliever would, would be convicted, that he would be called into account, that the secrets of his heart would be disclosed, and that he would worship God and declare that God is among us, right? So it's evangelistic, it's truth-telling, it's uh, convicting, right? It's, it's pastoral. So I just want to be clear as we dive into the rest of what it says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, that there really isn't an argument about whether or not Paul assumes and prescribes that men and women would be serving in a public manner in the church. We've had some debate over that in churches throughout the last 50 years or so. But I, I just want you to see that it's very plain in 1 Corinthians 11 that both of these are happening. Now, with that said, uh, let me say one other thing. For how many of you in the room <clears throat> has it been driving you crazy that I'm wearing this hat? Thank you. Thanks for being honest. Just be honest with me. How many of you noticed it the moment I came up? Yeah. And you're like, what does this mean? Is, where is this church going? We are on a slippery slope, right? He's got this hat on. Next week he's going to come up here in a hoodie or something. What is going on? I will tell you, I debated this week about whether or not I would come out, like I thought about coming out of my swim trunks. I thought about coming out in my bathrobe. You'll be happy to know I opted into this, right? I was looking for something that I thought would be, how many of you, me wearing a hat doesn't bother you at all? Yeah, who cares, right? I was trying to get you to put yours on and you wouldn't do it. Uh, 
in a room this size, there are some of you who probably didn't even notice I was wearing it, right? You don't, you like, it just, it's a non-factor. It's because of the culture we live in, right? Some of you grew up in a culture or even a church culture where hats were strictly forbidden. Let me make you feel better. I'll get rid of it. Okay, there we go. I don't need it. Some of you, oh yeah, there we go. Thank you very much. That's all I had to do to get a little bit of appreciation. Just take off a hat, my bow, and sit down. I thought about just wearing something that all of us would agree would be inappropriate. Had I come up here in my bathrobe this morning, I bet I couldn't have got any one of you to say, like, we're fine with it, right? I think everybody would be like, we're not coming to this church anymore, right? When we get into 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to understand that there are some cultural things that are happening that, that don't make sense to us because we don't live in the same culture, right? There are some cultural things that are happening, and we know that's true. And we affirm that's true, and I'll tell you how we all affirm that's true. I don't think I see a single woman in the room currently wearing a head covering. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting at all that I think you should be. But what I do want you to recognize is that when we read a text like 1 Corinthians 11, there, there isn't really any of us that are going like, oh, that's a thing that was meant for every church and every age for the rest of time. Women are always supposed to have their heads covered. Now, there are some Christian traditions where the women have their heads covered today. And it's because of the way they interpret the words and the phrases and the logic and the illustrations and the metaphors and the application. And they go, no, this, this whole thing is for every time and age. We in this church recognize that there are some cultural things here. The challenge for us is to untangle what is cultural and what is timeless. Does that make sense? What is cultural and what is timeless. So that's what we'll endeavor to do as we walk through this. With the overarching umbrella of glorify God by imitating Christ in sacrificing yourself for the service of others. We've already looked at it in terms of the Lord's Supper, right? That if you're just trying to feed yourself to the detriment of other people, you've lost the spirit of Christ. Now let's dive through the first part where he's talking about head coverings, recognizing that there's some cultural stuff happening here. He says this in verse 2. Now... I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, this is the first sentence, verse 3 here, where we start to have people that just like, fork, there's forks in the road, like 50 forks in the road that go different ways. And it has to do with the interpretation of the word head. The Greek word is the word kephale, right? And that word can mean a bunch of different things. For many people, forever, they've always translated that word, head, in this text, to mean uh, ruler, or boss, right? So if you read it that way, then it says, I want you to understand the boss of every man is Christ and the boss of a wife is her husband and the boss of Christ is God. Now the place where that interpretation of kafali gets troubling is when you say the boss of Christ is God because in Trinitarian theology, we can enter into a, a bit of a, a classic heresy when we start to create hierarchy between Jesus and the Father. Does that make sense? So we have to throw that out, I think, right? Now, again, I could be wrong. But I think we have to throw that thing that means boss or ruler out. It's also worth noting, by the way, that every time you see man translated in this particular chapter, it is the same word that in this particular chapter and sometimes in the same sentence is translated husband. And every time you see the word woman, it's the same word that is translated wife. And the translators have just sort of taken their best guess on when to use what. If you have the ESV, which I read out of this morning, they're translating verse 3 to say husband and wife in that second section. But in the first one, they say Christ and man. It's the same word for man and husband. They're just making a choice for how they want to interpret that based on their own perception of what the text means. 
but that is confusing, and that means you should give yourself a little bit of grace in understanding what it says. I don't think that kafali in this case means boss, because that, that heresy of God being Jesus' boss feels weird. The word head can also mean something like origin or source, like the head of a river, right? And there are many great theologians who love Jesus and have a high, high view of scripture that would argue that's what's being said here. So in that case, it would be saying, I want you to understand that the origin of every man is Christ and the origin of a wife or a woman is the man or her husband and the origin of Christ is God. And in that particular case, they'd be arguing that Jesus created all things, that when we go back to Genesis 2, which he references here in a few minutes, that uh, the woman in that story in Genesis 2 is taken from the rib of the man, so he is the origin of the woman. Uh, and when it talks about Christ being the, uh, God being the origin of Christ, then the argument would be that he is the one who sent Jesus in the incarnation, right? So it's not hierarchy, but it's more about source. There's all kinds of different interpretations. I'm not even going to hit them all, but I will tell you there's a third interpretation and it happens to be mine. And that is that in each of these cases, when he's sort of laying out this comparison, that the word kafali that's translated head here can mean foremost position or like the top of a mountain, right? The top of a mountain, the prominent position. And to me, that makes a little more sense. I could be wrong about this, but when it says, I want you to know that Christ is in the prominent position over men and that, and that uh, the husband is in a prominent position over his wife or men are in a prominent position over, wisdom, uh, over women, that can be a cultural thing. And, that, and the prominent position of Christ is God. Jesus himself will say, I'm submitted to the will of the Father. In his high priestly prayer, he talks about the fact that he's come to do everything the Father has called him to do. So it's not so much about authority, Right? But it's more about the position that, that those particular people are in and the way we perceive it. So he's talking about this. He says, I want you to understand that there are, there are these different leaders. By the way, um, then he goes on. Look at four with me. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Uh, I don't want to get into seven and eight yet. Let's slow down and look at these first couple of verses. He talks about the fact, and here now he's using kafale in a literal sense. And then he's in the same phrase, rotating it to a metaphorical sense. Let me tell you what I mean. Look, look with me if you will. Sorry. I know this is confusing, but when he says in verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He's using the word kafale head in two different ways. So he says, if a man covers his head, then he's dishonoring his head. And by that, he means Christ, right? If he covers his physical head, he dishonors his leader, the one he is called to honor, right? Christ. But that's confusing in the interpretation as well, because again, it's the same word. So there are some people who will look at this and go, it says when he covers his head, he dishonors his head, right? Physical in both cases. Uh, It's just one more fork in the road in interpreting this text. I think that what he's saying, and in order to sort of interpret this in my interpretation, of which I could be wrong, I think he's pointing at a common cultural practice that was happening in Corinth at the time, where there were men who were 
tempted to pray and to prophesy in the standard of the Roman culture that was around them. And so what they would do is they would pull up their toga over their head in association with a cultural practice that had nothing to do with God, right? Now, I could be wrong about this, but I think that what he's saying is, in your prayer and prophecy as a man, when you cover your head, you're actually doing something that dishonors Christ, your king, right? It brings him dishonor. So don't do it, right? When you cover your head, and I think that was a cultural thing that they were doing at the time, there are some who will argue that they think there were men in this culture who were covering their heads in order to seem like women, and that they were trying to blur the gender lines. But I, I mean, you have to make a little bit of a jump to get to that, in my opinion, right? I think he's talking about men who were doing something that was culturally acceptable, but was wrong for them. He says, when you cover your head, you dishonor your leader, you dishonor Christ. Then he goes on to say in verse five, every wife or every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Once again, I think there's a literal and a metaphor. If a woman has her head uncovered in this culture, right, she's not wearing her veil. If a woman has her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. And there I think he's talking, Kefali, I think he's talking about the one in the prominent position, her husband or her father, right? I think he's talking about the culture. And here, here's what I mean by that. Once again, in a seaport town like Corinth, which was on an isthmus and was highly traveled, there were cultural norms. And one of the cultural norms in Corinth at the time was that married women and women who weren't available wore head coverings. They wore head coverings all the time, except for when they were in their homes, which adds to the confusion here in a second. Any woman that you saw with her head uncovered and with her hair loosely flowing was a woman that would be associated either with prostitution, right? Or a woman who was in essence saying, I'm available, right? A woman whose head was shaven was either someone who had been in prison or a woman who'd been caught in adultery and her head was shaven. So in both cases, when he talks about an uncovered head or when he talks about a head being shaven, he's talking about people that were in dishonorable positions in their culture. What I think is happening, in my opinion, in this text is that you've got women who know they're free in Christ. There's no more distinction between Greek and Scythian, slave and free, men and women. And they're leaning into the freedom that they have in Christ, that all of those old divisions are gone. We can all sit at the communion table together as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And in that freedom, in their home worship, I think they were throwing off their head coverings, which they wore in every other context, but they were throwing off their head coverings. And in that, I think it became a distraction and a moment of dishonor for their husbands or their dads, right? Remember, they're in house churches and the one place where a woman was able to take her head covering off without dishonor was in her home. So imagine if we were meeting in your home and let's say that taking your shoes off in culture, in our culture, taking your shoes off meant that you were a prostitute, right? But you're just in your home and you're comfortable and you want to kick your shoes off. And then everybody else in the room with you is looking at your bare feet going like, this lady's got some problems and her husband obviously doesn't know what's going on, right? They're in these home churches and in their freedom in Christ, I believe the women were taking off their head coverings. And as a result, here's what happens. The attention moves off of the glory of God. The attention moves off of prayer and prophecy for the edification of the body, for the conviction of the unbeliever, and for the drawing of people to the knowledge of the presence of God in their midst, all the things we read about in 14. The moment she takes her head covering off, because she's free and she can, because she's relaxed and in her home, I think she brings dishonor, not on her physical head, I think she brings dishonor on her, uh, on her metaphorical head, who is her husband or her dad, who then is having to go like, she's not a prostitute, she wasn't in prison, she isn't available, none of those things, right? 
And so what Paul, I think, is advocating for in this text is that we pay attention in our worship in the midst of our freedom, that we pay attention to social and cultural conventions and don't do anything that takes the attention off of Jesus. Does that make sense? Don't do anything that takes attention off of Jesus. Remember that in every circumstance, you're trying to glorify God by imitating Christ in the service of other people. And so if in your freedom and your prayer and prophecy, which no other women in your culture are able to do in their religious setting, but because of the freedom of Christ, women can pray and prophesy in public. And in your celebration of that freedom, you want to throw off your veil because the veil means nothing. Know that in the culture in which you live, Paul is saying, it actually is disruptive and brings dishonor to your head. Right? Let's read it again with that lens in mind. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his leader or is, or is the one in prominent position. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Now he's going to move on into an argument from creation. And I want to take too much time here, but I do want to look at it. He says, man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I want to just talk about verse 10 really quickly. Nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody knows what they're talking about in verse 10. (laughs) Nobody knows. If you think you know what verse 10 is about, you're guessing. You're guessing. When he says a woman should have authority on her head, that is actually the only place in the text where it actually talks about authority, right? There are a lot of people who've taken the text and they've used it to justify the fact that all men should have all authority over all women. That isn't what this text is about. Not in its larger context, not even in its specific context. But the only place in this text where it talks about authority is when it tells a woman to take authority for her own head for the sake of the angels. And I've read 50 different opinions. Some of them have to do with the temptation of angels to sleep with human women in the Old Testament. Some of it has to do with the fact that angels are the emissaries of both prayer and prophecy. That in prayer there was a common thought at the time that the angels would be the ones that would take the prayers to God and they would bring the prophetic utterances to the prophet, right? So maybe it's about that. And so there has to be a sign of authority so the angels understand that now we're free in Christ, whereas they wouldn't have understood that in the Old Testament. But that's just a guess. There are some who will talk about the rebellion of the angels, right? When Lucifer fell and took a third of heaven with him, that maybe there's this sign of a woman putting authority on her head for the sake of showing them that she is recognizing the honor that she gives to somebody else, right? Nobody knows. Nobody, 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 nobody knows. So don't, don't stress out about 10. Feel free to make your guesses. If you want to send them to me in an email, I'll be happy to laugh at them. Okay, so. What he is saying in 7 and 8 is he's pointing back, uh, and I don't want this to be too convoluted, but he's pointing back to creation. He's pointing back to creation in Genesis 2 where he says, and just read it again and think of it in light of Genesis 2. He says in in verse 7 and 8, man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. We know man was created in the image of God and, and is for the glory of God. Then he says, but woman is the glory of man. Notice here that he hasn't said the image of man because woman is created in the image of God, right? 
But what he's saying here is that women originally from verse uh, Genesis 2 were created to honor the man. The man was created and it was not good that he was alone, God said. He'd been naming the animals and he was alone. God in himself has perfect harmony and unity in, in the Trinity. And he looked at the man and he said, it's not good for him to be alone. And so woman was taken from the man and she was created to be his partner. You look at Genesis 2 and the idea is that those two come together and what? They become one flesh. The idea of one flesh is not a sexual thing. The idea of one flesh is a unity thing. So what Paul is arguing here is that we have to care about each other. From the very beginning, we were created for community. We were created to honor and to care for one another. In another text, Paul will say the husband needs to lay down his life for his wife like Christ did for the church. And the wife should submit to her husband. But that all happens under the umbrella of mutual submission, right? So here he's making an argument from Genesis 2, but the argument is not that women should serve men in every case and every time. What he's saying is from the get-go, we were created not just to care about ourselves, but to care about each other. From the start, we were created. And, And he's really clear about this if you look at the whole thing. Because he does say, woman is the glory of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's pointing in Genesis 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's just talking about the origin story there, right? Then he says, so here's my point in that. He's not saying every woman was created for a man, right? If you're a single woman in the room, you weren't necessarily created for a man. If you don't have a desire to be married, Paul will affirm that singleness is a gift of God, right? He's not saying that all women belong to every man or that they exist for men or that they're there for their entertainment or whatever. It's been distorted in so many ways. What he's saying is that at the outset, we were created for each other. He goes on to say, nine, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11, listen to this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. So listen, he's just said, hey, if we go back to Genesis 2, we see that all of us were created for each other, right? For the service of one another. And if you start to let your mind go to a place where you're like, yeah, all women were created for men and they exist for men and they should be glorifying men and worshiping men and whatever. Hold on, pump the brakes. He gets to 11 and 12 and he says, nah, nah, nah. Because even though women came from man originally, these days, all men come from a mama, right? God has leveled that playing field. He says, while woman did come from man in Genesis 2, these days all men come from woman. And look, we, we are interdependent upon each other, right? That ties directly into what he said in Galatians and what he'll say in a couple of weeks in, in 1 Corinthians as well about equitability among us, right? He says, all of us are in God. And so then he finishes this section by saying, judge for yourself, Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then he says in 14, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. When he says nature here, the idea is not, uh, it's, it's not based in the natural world because women's hair and men's hair grows exactly the same. We got some people in our church who are male who have long hair and we got some women who have short hair. This is not saying that you are unnatural or that you're a freak of nature or whatever. What he's saying is a reference to the culture in which he lives. He goes, we all kind of understand that women wear their hair long and men wear their hair short and women wear a veil. And like, we're not trying to upend the cultural norms for the sake of our freedom. We're trying to pay attention to the norms for the sake of focusing on the glory of God, right? 
paying attention to the cultural norms. Well, the cultural norms are not the same. There, there is no reason if you're a man with long hair in the room that you should feel shamed by what Paul has said to you. Or if you're a woman in the room with a shaved head in 2023, that you should be worried about what he said. This isn't, this isn't about the cultural norms now. But it does require us to pay attention to the cultural norms now. It does require us to pay attention to the cultural norms now. And, and I, I, I couldn't even begin to do all of that for you because we're in different settings. We have different families. We're in different workplaces. We're running in different circles. You've got different people around you. So you have to be constantly paying attention to what will bring you up and push Christ to the side, right? He finishes uh, in this section and says in 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You and I, in this section, in the one that follows it about the Lord's table and in the one that we'll study next week, what what he's saying to us again and again is, yes, you're free, but you need to be very careful how you use that freedom. Because in your freedom, you may dishonor people that you actually should be honoring, right? You may dishonor God himself. You may dishonor your family, your father, your husband, your wife. You may dishonor other people because you're just so convinced that you can do whatever you want. Paul isn't making a case for the fact that head coverings matter or don't matter. What he's saying is that in our cultural context, people are paying attention and we want them to focus on Christ. Don't be a distraction from the focus on Christ. I'm going to show you a picture really quick of a family photo. This was a family reunion. I saw this on the internet this week. Family reunion. I think this couple here at the front was celebrating their 60th anniversary or something. And so they got all their children and aunts and uncles and the whole family all together to take just a very beautiful photo. Uh, but one, one family member kind of just didn't understand the context. And you can see that person in the back row. They're kind of to the left. You see them? There's a clown in that picture, y'all. It's a little creepy, ain't it? That, uh, take that away. I don't want to look at it anymore. We're celebrating grandma and grandpa's 60th anniversary. Let's all put on our nice clothes and get together to take a photo. And Aunt Judy, of course, has to be like, well, I'm going to wear my clown makeup, right? She's misreading the situation. And as a result, the entire photo gets kind of disrupted after a moment. Because what's Aunt Judy? And I don't know their names. Sorry to all the Judys in the room. I'm not pointing at you. But, but, But Auntie there has decided to do something to serve herself rather than serving the occasion, rather than keeping the focus where it should be. Here is, here is the interpretation of, I think, 1 Corinthians 11 all the way through. We are called to worship together, men and women worshiping together, to glorify God by imitating Christ, by sacrificing our own tastes and preferences, our own freedoms for the good of other people. And in so doing, our worship becomes representative and a remembrance of Christ. When we come to the Lord's table and we do it selfishly, it no longer has anything to do with Christ. When we come to prayer and prophecy, right? And I'll give you one example of this. We all know the culture of celebrity pastor that exists in America and around the world. Celebrity pastors, where a guy gets up to do the thing I'm doing right now, open God's word, but it really isn't about studying God's word and trying to untangle what's written there. It's really about building a kingdom for that individual. Selling books and trying to, you know, create all these other campuses and video series and podcasts and whatever. Listen, if it becomes about me, it isn't about Jesus and me at the same time. Does that make sense? It can't be about me and Jesus at the same time. And it can't be about you and Jesus at the same time. Were those women free to take their head coverings off in their homes? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why he says, judge for yourself. You're in a different situation. You've got to feel it out. Were they free to take it off in Christ? You bet they were. 
Were they free to pray and prophesy in a mixed company? You bet they were. But what he's saying is that might not be the best thing to do in your setting because in the city in which you live, women with uncovered heads are women of disrepute. And therefore, while you're supposed to be honoring God, you're actually busy honoring yourself and dishonoring people in your community. And it can't be. All of a sudden, the spirit of Christ is lost from that gathering. Does that make sense? The call for us is the thing I said at the beginning. Sorry to come a long way around to it. But the thing I said at the beginning is you and I are called to glorify God by imitating Christ, by laying ourselves down for the good of other people. And that's what he's going to say at the beginning of 11. It's what he says at the end of 11. It's what he's going to say next week. And then he's going to get into the idea that what should be driving us is love. And it'll all come together, right? But for this morning, complicated text. I'm sure that there are places where you disagree with me or you have questions or whatever. I'm happy to wrangle those with you, but I could also, I'd be very happy to give you the names of other pastors who you might send those emails to. So just let me know and I'll pass that your way. Uh, In the spirit of the imitation of Christ and the service of others and the glory of God, would you pray with me? God, I thank you. I thank you for the text. And that feels like a weird thing to say because it's a difficult text and it's uh, had me up at night and uh, confounded. And, but the study on my end was really good for me and really, Healthy, I thank you that you wrote the Bible the way you did, that you didn't just give us a systematic theology book, but that you gave us heart and culture, that you gave us different time periods and places, that you gave us uh, illustrations and stories of different things happening in different places, that we then have the opportunity to look at the overarching and timeless principles and to connect to the way in which we're glorifying you today. What does our worship look like? Are there places where our worship becomes about us? instead of about you? Are there places where in our freedom we are tempted to draw the attention to ourselves rather than to focus our attention on you and honoring the body and honoring you because that's the spirit of Christ? Will you help us to be a sacrificial people who are united in our sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.